Welcome to What's Your Beef, a Beef Australia production. Each week we will introduce you to people living and working in the beef community and some of the characters that help deliver the iconic triannual event. Hello and welcome to What's Your Beef, I'm Jane Cudahy. Dr Beth Woods has had one of those extraordinary careers that has not only crossed industries and international borders, but social conventions. Not only was she the first female extension officer in Queensland's Agriculture Department, she was the first female Rhodes Scholar to be announced, Queensland's first female Director General of the Department of Agriculture and Fisheries, and the first female professor at the University of Queensland's Gatton campus. Now, Dr Woods is a self-employed agricultural consultant, working on everything from foreign food security to chairing the Policy Council for the Cattle Council of Australia and mentoring a number of up-and-coming producers in the Australian cattle industry. Okay, well, I'm a city slicker, but I guess I've got good agriculture and agribusiness sort of genetics. My dad... Uh, and grandfather um, had a farm up at Kingaroy, so they jointly owned that, although my father worked in Brisbane. Um, He was, uh, I suppose you'd call him an accountant and business type person uh, working in the Reserve Bank, but he actually ended up with the job of um, rural credits manager. And back in those days, the Reserve Bank actually provided the funding or the finance for rural cooperatives. So, Dad used to have contact with all of the the cooperative sugar mills and the ginger people and the fruit and vegetable cooperatives that were around in those days. So um, farming uh, in the background that we used to go up and visit on a very regular basis during holidays and at weekends, but day job um, doing rural credits. And then on my mum's side, um, her father was the... Uh, general manager of what became Paul's Milk when he died. So I had agribusiness on one side, if you like, and agriculture on the other side. Wow, you really were in there, weren't you? uh, So I didn't grow up every day on a farm, but I had a lot of contact with farming and agriculture and the question of where food came from was pretty um, much a non-question in our family because it was quite obvious where food (laughs) came from. So how did you take the next step into studying agriculture and being involved in it? Well, I was one of those lucky kids who loved school and found schoolwork easy and I was good at science and maths. And most of my friends were going into medicine, which I was reasonably interested in, but I just couldn't sort of come to grips with the idea of going on with my school friends for another six years at university. So I started looking at what else could I apply my science and math skills to? And agricultural science was obviously something that fitted the family interest, it fitted my interest. And it was also um, very topical at the time because we were um, in the process at a global level of really facing a a big and very public and publicised Um, bout of hunger in many, many countries, but particularly in Africa. And so it was, if you like, sort of a world food crisis combined with my interest in science and maths and the family interest that found me ending up enrolling in ag science. Okay. So with ag science, you you just mentioned um, a fair bit of overseas influence and and those big sort of world issues. 
did you come out and or study with that in mind or did you you know did that come and that kind of influence come after your study Look, I think I was really lucky in that we had a fantastic range of experience amongst the people who were teaching us agriculture at UQ at that time. And one of our lecturers in particular, a guy called Peter Whiteman, had done quite a lot of work with SEAT, which is the International Agricultural Research Centre that focuses on tropical agriculture. And so he would often illustrate his lectures with um, photographs and stories from his international work. He invited students who were interested to go to, you know, the occasional talk from a visiting speaker who was interested in that sort of work. So um, I didn't go into agriculture with a clear pathway but certainly by the time I finished my undergraduate degree, I was aware of some of the ways in which um, international agricultural science happens and how you might end up being able to be involved. So that was, I think, um, you know, really not planned, but one of those great things that happens uh, in the best tradition of university education that teaches you the basics but also gives you lots of little snapshots of possibilities. Yeah, exactly. And and the breadth, I guess, of agriculture, and that's being highlighted really now um, when it just seems like there's a real movement now to really highlight the, the depth and breadth of agriculture and the many careers in it. But um, obviously at the, the time where you were going through university, that was also part of the, the story. Um, so where did you, when you finished studying, where did you, what was your first job? So my first job was with the Department of Primary Industries in Atherton. And I was the extension officer, um, a trainee, really. Um, back in those days, I used to basically run a buddy system. But I was responsible for um, agriculture activities in Atherdenshire, Melandershire and Herbertonshire. Um, so um, all suitably civilised parts of the world. My deputy director at the time said, Oh, you know, we don't want because girls didn't work in extension, so I was the first one working in extension. Really, out of Queensland me, or in in the Queensland government? Yep, and they um, they were convinced that I would break down somewhere and you know die in <laughs> <Yeah>. the <laughs> wouldn't be able so, to handle the long days in the car in the that's paddock. Right, yeah. So, too so I was sent to a suitably civilized part of the world, and I have to say. Um, you know, once again, really benefited from that because it was a very um, profitable and productive part of the state agriculturally with a wide range of people and a wide range of production systems. So, you know, a really nice place to sort of consolidate what you'd learned at university. And so what was the, what was the team like when you got there? Because you're, you're the first female. Obviously, you just said that, you know, there was some trepidation in sending a woman out into the field. When you actually got there, though, what was it What was it like? Was it as a, a bit of an anticlimax or was there still a bit of um, proving yourself no, to do? No, it was – well, I think it, it was a very different environment to what an equivalent graduate would go into today because there were about 10 people in the Atherton DPI office in those days and the only other women were um, – 
the Secretary there was a full of... a full time admin person. Yeah. Because of course that was you know pre computer, so everything got typed by hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was a part time lady who looked after the front counter when the full time one was on lunch or on holidays or whatever. And apart from that, everybody else was men and um, people expected the person who got out of the DPI car to be a man. Um, And most people were sort of a bit taken aback but, you know, got over it pretty quickly. There were a handful of people who would come to the front counter and say, you know, with their disease plant or their pests or whatever it was they wanted someone to look at, and at the front counter, they'd say, oh, I'll just get Beth for you. Oh, no, I don't want the girly. <laughs> <laughs> How um, did you deal with that? When was, was it, did you get well, the Well, the interesting thing was I usually didn't have to deal with it because I'd be sitting in the next door office. It wasn't a very, you know, sophisticated office. And so I'd hear the the lady on the front counter, and they were both younger than me, and they'd say, you've got no idea. She knows a lot, you know. You really <laughs> ought to give her a chance. And they'd be they'd be giving this bloke heaps and then they'd go and get me. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. So it's, I think, um, uh, just a, a great example of female collegiality, but also um, the nice thing about North Queensland, perhaps compared to some other parts of rural Australia at the time, was that it was sort of a bit frontiersy and it had a big ethnic mix. So it didn't have perhaps quite as um, dyed-in-the-wool stereotypes as maybe you'd have encountered in other parts of Australia. So um, I certainly I certainly found, um, for example, that most of the farmers of Italian and Albanian and, um, well, we had some Turkish people, we had some um, people from, you know, some of those other little countries like Macedonia and so forth um, who were farming up there and um, I found most of them very happy to work with me and I also you know found their wives very welcoming they'd often invite me in for their absolutely delicious biscuits oh or, my goodness you know, you'd have Christmas all the smokers yes that would and, be amazing and of course, lots of them were coffee drinkers at a mm. time when probably most um uh, Anglo-Saxon Australians were still drinking um, instant coffee yeah. <laughs> and Billy tea, yes. Uh, so, you know, it was um, a really nice place to be and a very friendly place to be. And as I said, most people, uh, if they did have some concerns initially, they got over them pretty quickly. So just while we're talking about gender essentially and before we move on with your career I just when you know you ultimately became the director general of of the DPI or DAF now um for for many years when you came to that role as such a senior um executive uh but also as a woman how did that environment change in the in that time from your first job up at Atherton to having that role considering you know there are I see, um, as, as a, you know, a layman, um, so many women in senior roles within DAF and, and those government organisations now, as well as, you know, huge amounts of scientists and, and experts in their field. So can you just give a bit of insight as, as to how that changed and, and what kind of environment did you really want to, to nurture when you were in that job? 
I think it had changed enormously by the time I got to the top of the organisation. When I first went into my first management role in government, which was in um, early 1990, um, Really, women in management roles were very sparse outside the corporate services area, you know, things like HR and finance. There'd been um, women in more senior roles there for quite a while, but in the agriculture-related roles, the the more science roles, there hadn't been. And, um, of course, I came to Brisbane just at the same time as the Goss government came into power and... um, they, they passed their Equal Opportunity Bill and there were equal opportunity initiatives across um, government. And I got, very soon after I came to Brisbane, I got called up to the Director General's office and I thought, oh, my God, what have I done that's, <laughs> you know, caused this? And he basically said, oh, well, we've got to nominate somebody to be on this this diversity stuff. <laughs> so, you know, we don't have anybody else. It'll have to be you. You're pretty diverse. <laughs> You're a girl. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> right. So I think, you know, if you, if you sort of then fast forward to 25 years later, um, there, by that stage we were fairly close to um, – probably at least 40% in our management ranks, um, women. Uh, We'd had a board of management that went up and down in terms of gender composition, but it had certainly, you know, we'd had 50% women. Um, So just chalk and cheese in terms of the working environment Um, and, you know, an enormous change really over a generation. Um, Most of the women who were in senior roles uh, when I first came into Brisbane in management in the early 1990s were single ladies or married ladies who didn't have children um, because it, you know, you, back in the day you were required to resign when you got married and certainly when I had children there were, you know, I reckon the whole department had a view. Uh, <laughs> about 50% of them said that it was a terrible waste of a good career to have children. Oh, no. And the other 50% said oh, these poor children, they're going to grow up very strange if you you keep working. Um, oh, gosh, so you're damned if you and, do and you're damned if you don't. Yes, and so, you know, you it was pretty clear that you couldn't please everybody. And, of course, um, there were no options back in those days for part-time work and there were very limited childcare options in um, rural and regional small towns. Mm-hmm. So by then I'd, I'd um, left Atherton and been to England done five years in Ipswich and I was back up in Atherton again and um, when I arrived back up in Atherton with my six-month-old baby with me, um, the same lady, one of the same ladies who'd been defending me at the front counter, she'd had children by then, and she said to me, oh, of course, um, Bosie will look after your baby. And I said, Bosie? And she said, oh, well, Bosie... Bosie's the childcare in town and she looks after all the DPI babies. <laughs> so, because <laughs> so, um, some of the DPI blokes were married to teachers and yep. so she didn't look after all the DPI babies. Um, she was a wonderful support and as were her family because they all got involved at times in helping to look after the kids. But, yeah, very, very different environment. Isn't to, that amazing um, that that was such... Where we are today. Yes, but, like, but the attitude, again, um, because, you know, North Queensland you know, can be written off sometimes with um, with its attitude 
to, to certain things. But the two examples you've given me um, are quite wonderful for that part of the world. Oh, I think um, it was, uh, as I said, much less um, stereotyped in terms of roles than perhaps other parts of rural Australia and probably, in fact, rural areas around the world at that time were um, just because it was a really diverse set of people and some of them had probably come out of pretty hard times and some of them had come from societies where women were had been working much more visibly, perhaps more than Australian women had been at that stage. So, you know, it was it was a really nice place to work and well, to live. I have to say, I I just thought just then we lived in Kenya for a time while my husband was working over there, and we really resisted the concept of a housekeeper going. You know, well, you know, I'm I'm fine. I'm working from home. I can look after it and. You know, the kids, myself, because we had two children while we were over there. And um, it really, it isn't until you really understand the society that if if I gave a job to a housekeeper, she would then be able to afford to have someone to look after her kids, which gave someone else a job, which gave someone else a job to look after her kids. And there was that real flow-on kind of cultural effect even that um, you don't understand when you first go into a society like that. But when you're there... Um, of course I was going to employ someone because it just it had this amazing you know for, for many benefits not least the fact that our kids can speak Swahili um, but uh, yeah it's that real acceptance of roles and and how they fit into to society as a whole I thought it was fascinating. I think you're absolutely right but it used to make me laugh when I or giggle when I um, was chair of the ERI board much later, and we'll, I'm probably jumping a bit ahead now, but um, when, I, when that board um, was headquartered in the Philippines and I used to sometimes look around the room at board meetings and think to myself, you know, I think I'm the only person in this room who's washed and ironed my own clothes. <laughs> yes, there is definitely a little of that. I, I, I won't which, lie. Which, um, because, of course, you know, that's just not a tradition we have in Australia. No, not to the same extent. No, it's not, and that's. I think that's what messed with my head the the most is that um it isn't our experience uh, at all, and you sort of resist it for a time until you understand. Anyway, we've gone well and truly off track, so I'm going to go back to to where you were, and you've got you've um you've had your children, and you're back in Athenon working there, and then you started to really uh, uh, change direction a little bit in terms of of your roles. So what happened? What happened then? Well, I um, I guess by that stage I'd been working in the field for 11 years in total and the opportunity came to apply for a first-level management job. So I applied and um, I guess part of what was going on at that stage was our first child had some health issues and it was very quickly obvious that he was going to benefit from having access to schooling that dealt with children who were visually impaired. So we were we actually sat down and did the exercise of where could we potentially work where there's a educational unit for the visually impaired and we had that all plotted out across the state and we said, well, what we're going to do is as soon as there's an opportunity for one of us to um, apply for a job in one of those places, we'll apply and then the other one will have to scramble as well as they can because um, my husband's an agricultural scientist too. I was going to say, what does your uh, husband do? <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a soil scientist. Okay. Uh, 
so um so these jobs came up and I applied for one and they well I actually applied for one in in Rockhampton and uh for one or for two in Brisbane and I ended up getting one of the ones in Brisbane um the one in Rockhampton, they told me I, you know, wasn't suitable for because I'd have to be supervising men, and they would probably wouldn't like it. Um, so that was a sort of a, a regional view. The view was that um, in Brisbane it would be, you know, easier to to make that transition. So break the glass so, ceiling. Yeah. So we came to. Brisbane and um, I went into a role which was manager farming systems but as I said um, there were very few women in management roles Um, there were sprinkled across the entire department there were a handful of us in more senior roles and we used to do things like get together occasionally for lunch you could get everybody around a very small table (laughs) Um, but um, that meant that extra opportunities came along, like the Director General asking me to do the diversity stuff, which um, gave me an opportunity to see just how differently some other departments across Queensland government worked and um, I, I guess um, gave me an understanding of at least the theory of gender issues in employment and also um, was the start of really collecting some extra management skills and um, leadership skills uh, because that was that role was representing the department and I needed to communicate back to the department what was going on in the whole of government sort of space. So it was a good developmental sort of role and um, it meant that I was a bit more visible perhaps and I was visible anyway because I was one of the few women around. Uh, So I got asked to either take on some roles outside of the department or um, apply for some of those roles. Uh, And perhaps I wouldn't have been except for the fact that I was female. I mean, I think being an unusual person can be quite advantageous. Uh, So... I um, was asked to join the Policy Advisory Council for ACR, the Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research, which is part of Australia's aid program and funds joint research activities between Australia and um, developing countries uh, that will benefit the poor. In and I'm you know just re- using really broad terminology mm. here, not not getting down to the detail of it. Uh, and I was also asked to apply for a position on the Northern Farming Systems Panel for GRDC. Um, so I, um, and in both cases, I had to make another appointment with the Director General and go up and ask whether I could do these things. And I think um, we've moved into an era where there's a lot of emphasis on integrity and ethics and, you know, the triple C sort of mm keeping their eye on everything that goes on in government. And it's actually stymied a lot of the um, ways that were open to people back when I was young to actually develop your skills because I was encouraged to be involved in both of those things and each of them required four or five meetings a year and um, they just, 
gave me again an opportunity to play on a bigger and different stage and to learn a lot um, do a lot of out of hours reading but uh, learn a lot and um, I guess just add to my skills and perspective um, in the case of GRDC in terms of the oversight of R&D investment and in the case of ACR that R&D investment thing again but added to it um, Australia's role and how Australia could both contribute to and benefit from activities in agriculture in the developing world. So I was really lucky that I was able to do those things. That sounds amazing. It sounds very busy, especially at that period of your life with with children and and everything else. But it's, um, as you say, fascinating. So how did you, because I can imagine when you first started as a scientist in the DPI, you're doing a lot of field work and and involved with with, um, graziers and farmers, you know, in that really grassroots level to sort of move up and start thinking well and truly outside our borders what was interesting to you what really was interesting to you like what kind of systems were you drawn to and and involved in I think um my training had really been in um in agriculture but I was always interested in the systems aspects of things so I, I really did the um, crop agronomy sort of stream. Agriculture's pretty bored, Beth, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> I, did the, I did the crop agronomy thing and also I did extension as a specialty at university. But they said to me at the time, oh, well, we probably won't employ you as an extension person. That was the DPI career advice because mm-hmm. we don't have women in those roles. Yep. But um, you'll need to have some other um, string to your bow. So I did both of those. But in doing those, I then got involved in um, working with the dairy industry and working with the beef industry. So I was always sort of across both cropping and animal industries to some degree. And then, of course, I went up to Atherton where the cropping system up there includes potatoes. And so that took me into the horticulture space a bit. And um, avocados were just making their first sort of appearance on the tableland at that period. So that was another sort of great opportunity to watch a tree-based horticulture industry in its developmental phase. And um, as I said, when I applied for the job in Brisbane, the job I actually got was manager farming systems. And so I was working um, in all the sort of areas which were involved with farming systems across animal industries and um, the whole range of plant industries. So I've always said, you know, I'm a person who likes poking my nose into everybody else's business, but it was really uh, a licence to um, be interested in basically everything and to look for the connections and the benefits and to try to help other people see where those connections could be made because that was one of the things that um, really struck me having worked in southeast Queensland and then up in north Queensland the things that we did in southeast Queensland were not routinely done in north Queensland and vice versa so um, it was still quite an insular time when people didn't move around as much Um, as I said you know we were pre-computer they just information wasn't shared as easily and there were all these opportunities for someone who was interested in extension to actually um, test whether 
new techniques or different techniques would be advantageous, but you had to know about them first. So I was really interested in that sort of question of how do you make connections and how do you put that on a scientific footing? And luckily, one of the things I had in my sort of farming systems responsibility was the start of computer modelling and and the modelling of farming systems, which um, was a joint activity between DPI and UQ and CSIRO and ended up being something in which um, that sort of set of collaborators ended up being the leading group in the world. So they were, and, and, you know, no thanks to me, I'd I'd have to say, I mean, I looked after the the fundamentals of administration and, and um, management, but they looked after the scientific leadership, which they were just some amazingly talented people in that group. And they went on to be real world leaders, but I was lucky enough to be sitting there. Um, you were part of the conversation. Watching, that's right, watching what yeah. they were doing and being able to think about how can we actually um, turn that into better management decisions on farm and um, better profits for farm families and better resilience, you know, better management of risk and uncertainty in um, farming conditions in Queensland where, yeah, we are really exposed to risk and uncertainty. So um, I was, I I think I've been lucky all the way through. I've had a fantastic, um, interesting and exciting career, but I've, also been lucky to work with some really fantastic people who were just world leaders in their space. Absolutely. And look, there's a few things that I do want to follow up. I'm also, I've got one eye on the time as well. But um, the when you were talking before about that translation from the science to, you know, changing practices on farm and that whole extension concept, there's still, it, it is a bit of a silver bullet question. And I, I was at a conference recently, the Anim- Australian Animal Science Conference in Cairns, where that question was asked time and time again, you know, how do we get producers to take note of what we're doing and how do we communicate um, what we're doing better? And so these practices are being picked up. Have you, has that been consistently one of the greatest challenges of research and development in your time? Look, I think it's a it's an ongoing challenge. I think it's incredibly challenging to be a... Um, top-notch manager of an agricultural enterprise in um, modern rural Australia because there are so many things to think about in terms of um, the management expertise that's required, the the bringing together of skills from IT to um, sophisticated machinery to staff management and oversight to um, understanding what consumer preferences are to animal health and animal welfare. Um, so I think the complexity is incredible and trying to think about how you can contribute to that um, essentially busy and noisy space in a way that helps people um, to make better decisions, that's certainly a, an ongoing challenge. And it works the other way around too, of course, because um, one of the things I've been doing in the last 12 months was chairing the Policy Council for Cattle Council Australia. And it's been really interesting in that exercise to um, discover 
what's going on in industry that I wasn't aware of in my government role, as well as what government's been busy doing that has been largely invisible to industry. So, as I said, it goes both ways. It's, so how do you fix that? Is that each each of those two sectors calling, you know, putting their hand in the air and saying, right, I don't know it all and I do need, you need to, to tell me what's going on or, you know, we I, need help I, in this area or? I think it's um, part of it is um, driven by the old sort of adult education principle, which is that people will learn what they need at the time. So you partly pull it together in the context of, the particular problem of the day um, and you just accept that some of the other things will, um, in a sense, sit waiting because they're not the highest priority need that somebody's got at the, at the moment. But I think the other thing that you've just got to do is um, you've got to remember that as a professional either on a farm or in government or in any other service industry related to agriculture, there's a massive communication job and there's also a massive information gathering job and um, a percentage of your time has to be set aside or um, used for that purpose because if all your time is um, sitting in a laboratory doing laboratory tests or all your time's sitting uh, in a yard shifting cattle um, you know, or grading cattle or um, weaning or whatever, then you're missing a whole lot of stuff which is actually uh, the cutting edge of where industry's headed. Um, so it's it's just, I think it's a challenge, but I actually think, Jane, that it's, it's not confined to agriculture. It's actually, um, you know, what's commonly referred to as the information explosion, just the, the fact that there's so much going on and we've got so much better opportunity to be able to to find it and access it. Um, and so you've there's a whole set of skills there at the the end of the person who's going to be the information user to seek out the information they need. And at the end of the universe, the information provider trying to make sure that they've got the right sort of hooks that people can find when they're searching on the internet or um, you know, scanning their eye down uh, what's on in my neighbourhood sort of mm. exercise. Um, there aren't any magic ways to make it perfect and I don't think it ever will be. And I, I think we've just got to concede there's more information out there than anybody can absorb. But we need that information to be visible for those people who need it at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you know, you have, as you said, been chairing um doing some work with the with the Cattle Council of Australia and you know, you've had a lifetime involved in rural in rural industries, of course, including the beef industry, and we are on, on the beef podcast today. So from your point of view, now that you've been able to step back from some of those roles and, and take a real world worldwide view of it, what are the challenges for the Australian beef industry right now, considering, you know, the biosecurity risks that are front and centre as well as welfare and, and all the other things? They're not that different from what they've been in the past. Biosecurity is a massive issue um, and will continue to be and probably is underdone in the beef industry at the property level. I think, you know, people um, have probably in some cases taken a sort of minimalist approach and and it's it's 
not going to cut the mustard if we end up with one of these big biosecurity threats actually landing here. Um, I think climate change um, and managing carbon and managing biodiversity at the property level is uh, an increasing challenge. But then what I would call the related issues of being able to feed animals well, which is ultimately the first and absolutely critical criteria of animal welfare in a changing environment, um, that's that's just good old-fashioned um, land management for an agricultural producer combined with animal nutrition. And together, if they're well-managed, um, along obviously with managing breeding is or, or animal selection, they're the, the key elements of profitability. And, and in the end, the business only runs if it's profitable and it only runs if it can um, be profitable the majority of years. And that um, that's a challenge for any business, uh, It's especially in a rapidly changing environment. Uh, and I don't think that's those big things have changed all that much. I think carbon's much more in focus for us now. Biosecurity's always been big, and um, but being being profitable in a highly variable environment and doing it in a way that's sustainable that's probably been um, a constant throughout my career. What I think is impressive now is I see. Um, some really top-notch um, managers who really are doing a great job of using lots of um, the systems that that we we never even dreamed of back when I uh, was in the field in the 80s and the 90s. So you know, I I think um, Australian agricultural managers and Australian beef producers are really right up there um, and do a great job. Yeah. If you could change one thing, like when you think about all the systems that you, you've seen and you do a lot of work with food waste, which we haven't even touched on, which I just fascinates me incredibly, yeah, so we'll try to get there as well. But what's, what's your greatest frustration? Like when you are looking at all of these systems and the challenges and people's attitudes to them and the research being done, like you're, you're so lucky to be able to bear witness to all of those different components what's the one little area of frustration that really gets you I think um for me over my entire career the most frustration um arises in business management situations either far more agribusiness where people aren't on top of their data um <laughs> and you know to be able to manage it you've got to measure it I, I'm I'm I said right at the beginning that, you know, I was probably a science and maths nerd, but um, ultimately you do have to know what causes what and, you know, what an animal costs to get to a certain stage and how much you can afford to feed it. And um, it's it's very um, nerve-wracking when you see people who... Uh, dealing with, you know, their family's future and quite large sums of money and they don't seem to have done some really basic sums to uh, understand, 
what would be the most likely strategies to deliver them success. So I'm just thinking, for example, um, I think we've seen an enormous improvement in drought management in the beef industry. Uh, you know, it it really was horrendous back in the um, early 90s when basically animals, you know, did, people didn't lighten off. Um, they held everything and they hoped it was going to rain and animals would die in droves. Um, these days I think we see people taking a much more considered approach. Um, they lighten off, they make good decisions, and then suddenly you'll find a, a business that is just hand-feeding animals that should have been sent to market ages ago because there's just no way that animal can actually pay back what you've spent on it. Um, and, you know, it's such an open-ended thing, you don't know when it is going to rain again. So I suppose it's that frustration where it seems to me that people haven't done some basic sums and and nobody in their circle of influence has... Pulled them um, up on it. Pulled them up or been able to help them with that. Mm. Um, you know, Because so often it's, you know, we all see the world the way that... With, with our shaped eyes, if you like, you know, with mm. the, we see the things that we know about and that we expect to see and that we want to see, and all of us have blind spots. Um, but uh, that's one that I feel, you know, we we ought to be getting close to being able to close off. Yeah, and I can see your point with with that. And I do. Before we we um, say goodbye, I do want to talk to you about the, the work that you're doing around food waste on a global scale, because that's you know fundamentally part of what you've been working towards. But what what are you doing, and how did you first get involved with that? Okay, well, the food waste thing. Um, the main way that I'm I've got a finger in that sort of activity now is through ACR, the Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research. As I said, I joined them in a role early in the 1990s as mm, a very a young ago. scientist, and I'm back there again as a commissioner. Uh, ACR is doing some work with its Canadian equivalent and funding work into developing countries to try to um, reduce food waste. The estimate at the moment is that um, as much as 50% of the food that's grown doesn't actually end up being consumed. It, it gets spoilt or wasted somewhere along the supply chain. And, of course, that means that every unit of food that is eaten has cost twice as much carbon and twice as much environmental impact as it would have if all the food were able to be utilised. So uh, it really is trying to touch it at multiple different points. It's looking at um, food waste in the paddock um, and that's, you know, for the for people in beef, it's it's um, animals that that die that don't get to marketable age. It's um, food waste in the sense of um, product crops or pastures that uh, get grown but don't get harvested, get left in the paddock for some reason. Um, what it's about what about at, fertility? Um, issues then too. So if a, if a cow's not producing every year, but she's still consuming grass, if you haven't well, worked that, out, that, that's a waste. That's potentially a waste issue as well. Um, and I, you know, again, I think good managers basically have a pretty tight look at what's productive in their herd and what yeah, isn't. Yeah, but that's still not wide. 
spread. Like I don't think it's you know it's no. certainly becoming better, but it's 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 certainly something that can be improved. Exactly, and I guess it's a it's in a case of getting the data and then acting on it, which um, goes back to your frustration point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But but um, so it, you know, it's all those points where you don't end up with a productive um, system, and but then there's all the things that happen post harvest, uh, and in fact, the the meat industry is pretty impressive. Um, most of the Byproducts or a large proportion of the byproducts in the meat industry get um, used again. So, you know, I think about plasma, I think about um, the um, pericardial sacs that go off to be made into heart valves for, for people. I think about the skins, I think about the um, products made with hooves and bone. Um, you think about the methane generated from. Um, waste pools around abattoirs. So there's lots of that sort of um, use of byproducts that's that's improving. And um, I, then then the next bit that you go to is the, the food wastage in the actual supply chain. And, of course, in developing countries, that um, continues to be largely about unreliable power sources and unreliable refrigeration and, and coal chains and meat that's spoiled um, or that is of only semi-marketable quality by the time it gets somewhere. Uh, and then that's all the things that happen after you've actually cooked the product. So, you know, all the bits that you chop off um, or the food that doesn't get eaten in the restaurant and where does that go next? And, of course, we're all super careful about swill feeding because of the biosecurity risks. So thinking about how that product can actually be part of a, a circular economy, a, a, um, a non-wasteful system is a really critical part of the exercise as well. And I think it's an area of technology where some developing countries are going to leapfrog developed countries. Um, in the same way as, you know, I remember going to Mozambique years ago and discovering they never actually got to the landline telephone, so and they've never really got to the desktop computer. No, there's, there's huge amount that we found that in in Kenya and a lot of East Africa yeah. too. So just they just they've completely just missed jumped, it. Yeah, jumped straight to mobile and satellite, mm. and in a way um, lost missed out on a lot of um, what would have been quite expensive infrastructure on the way past. Mm. And I, uh, one of the interesting things in the World Food Summit and the sessions on food waste in that was that there's developing countries coming up with really sophisticated plans about how they're going to capture food that's been wasted at the point of consumption or the point of sale and bring that back into either um, fertiliser products or energy products or um, paper products, you know, all sorts of possibilities that are being um, looked at. And because they haven't had the systems that we've already invested in, I think they're just, as I said, going to jump past us I think and so do too. some really amazing things. Yeah, and innovation that, you know, stems from necessity is is really powerful too. Which it, I... it is, and especially if it's informed by really sophisticated science because, you know, if you look at the science that we've got around polymers, the science we've got around um, uh, genetically modified bacteria, et cetera, that can eat all these sorts of things, there's just so much um, technical capacity to do 
interesting things with food waste that have environmental benefits and that um, also mean that we can use the resources we've got more effectively. Absolutely. Well, look, Beth, I'm sure there's many, many other things that we can talk about, but um, we have I've taken up quite a lot of your time already. So, no, I thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening. You can hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our episodes. And if you're enjoying listening to the show, we would appreciate a quick rating and review. Visit beefaustralia.com.au for more information on this great event. Music